When I was uh, 16 years old and started dating my wife, Rebecca, I met one of her pastors for the first time. His name is Ofer. Ofer is now a very dear friend of mine since that time. His name means uh, fawn in Hebrew. You may be more familiar with the feminine form, Oprah. Ofer is an Israeli Jewish believer in Jesus. And at that time, I'd never met an Israeli, let alone an Israeli Jewish believer in Jesus. That turned out to change my life for many reasons, one of which is that my relationship with Ofer stimulated very deep questions about the Jewish people and about God's work in history. These questions eventually flourished into a genuine love for the Jewish people and as important, a genuine love for the way in which God reveals himself in the Bible through the covenant with Jew and Gentile in a deeply moving story that will consummate in a new world of peace or shalom in the Hebrew. That's the story of the Bible, really. It's the gospel. It's the story into which we who are Gentiles, which are the majority of us here this morning, I think, it's the story into which we are grafted, to use Paul's language in Romans. It's a story which ought to inform our own sense of identity. When I say our, I'm meaning primarily we of us who are Gentiles. It ought to inform our place in the world and in time. It's the story we tell ourselves when we gather together for worship and mission. It may be unfamiliar to us, but it's not unfamiliar to Paul, and I want us to be familiar with this story and to be inspired by it because of the impact that it has on our sense of mission. And I want us to be motivated by what Paul is motivated by. I want us to be uh, impressioned by his exhortation. I want us to be formed by it. Uh, that is because it's what Paul's expectation is when he describes it this way, not just Paul. But the prophets, Jesus. So we're going to be in the letter to the church in Rome. Paul writes a passionate letter to the believers in Rome. If you've not been really familiar with the letter, sometimes there's a stereotype of it kind of being this systematic theological treatise. It is full of energy and passion. There's a swirl of energy around Paul. Paul, at this stage in his ministry, is gathering a collection of money from the Gentile churches for an offering to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That would be a whole sermon in itself. And he mentions that here in chapter 15. He's also planning a trip to Spain. Paul's not one to sit still. Uh, Paul's also caught up in controversy all the time. He's too Jewish for some of the Gentiles. He's too liberal for some of the Jews. And, of course, he's burdened with pastoral concern for his young church plants, uh, which are usually no more than a dozen or a couple dozen people. All of this is motivating Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. There's a lot going on, which is feeding his, his expression uh, in the letter. Now, Paul's not yet been to Rome, uh, but he wants to enlist their support for this collection that he's taking up for Jerusalem. And he would hope that they would be a base of support for his planned mission to Spain. So after 25 years of challenging and fruitful missionary journeys, he's kind of turning his sights now to new horizons. He's done a couple of missionary loops already. Now he wants to push out into some new boundaries, and he's hoping to communicate uh, that to the Roman church. However, to speak to them at all means to address their own context He's not just writing a brochure or a fundraising letter. 
Rome, the Roman church, that is, was likely started by Jewish believers who heard the gospel in Jerusalem at Pentecost and then returned to Rome. And they were likely led originally by those Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, uh, the Gentile believers that were part of the synagogue. That's a really important little group of people, a niche. Um, oftentimes around the synagogues in the Roman Empire, there would be Gentile participants. They were not converts exactly. They hadn't been circumcised. They hadn't joined the Jewish community, but they were God-fearers is what they were called. And when the gospel spreads, it spreads first to the Jews, then to these God-fearing Gentiles, then to Gentiles who had no Jewish background at all. It's kind of interesting to keep that in mind as you read scripture. Um, but there's something interesting that happens in Rome, and that's in the year 49. Uh, the emperor Claudius required all Jews to leave Rome because there was some sort of controversy around a figure called Crestus in Latin. Um, could be referring to Jesus Christ. Uh, there was some kind of Jewish controversy which was creating irritation for the Romans, and they did not like to be irritated. So they kicked all the Jews out. Good solution. That meant that overnight... Uh, the church congregations in Rome went from being predominantly Jewish run to now being completely Gentile run. However, by the time Paul writes this letter a few years later, less than 10 years later, in, in about 57, the Jewish people have started to return to their congregations. And that is creating a tension. Um, and that's what Paul is addressing here in the letter to Rome that there's friction between the Jewish believers in Jesus and the Gentile believers in Jesus after their return after this expulsion. So that will be a key feature in the structure of this letter. Paul needs to tie all of this together somehow. His collection, his trip to Spain, the local context, what is going to tie all this together? The letter in that sense isn't about only one thing. It's a lot of things going on here, but what ties it together really is the gospel. That's the framework that he draws it together, and that's why it's important for us to hear the story that he's telling. The gospel is the center of the Roman letter, and it's developed and applied in many different dimensions, as the gospel always is, as Paul draws his different themes together. Uh, into its meaning. So if, if you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn uh, to the letter in Romans. I'll, I'm going to move into a couple of texts. But you can hear the gospel being proclaimed right off the bat in Romans 1. Uh, and here, it's kind of a narrative expression. You'll hear the storytelling elements here. So this is not like a theological summary of the gospel. This, this year, we're going to hear Paul telling the story. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's compact. That is so rich. Paul's drawing on the entire scope of covenantal history. 
And these are important words. He's saying that the gospel comes way back from the promises to the patriarchs through the messianic King David to Jesus, our Messiah, the impact of which will achieve the covenant promise to bring not only the Jews, but even the nations into relationship with the living God. That's a lot. Paul's excited about that. It's what motivates him. It's what he's about. Now, farther on in chapter one, there's a concise kind of expression of this, the gospel, in chapter one, verse 16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So you'll hear that distinction again. Jew, Gentile, Jew, Greek, Jew, the nations, All right? This is really, really important because it goes back to what God promised Abraham. Through you, meaning the Jewish people, all the nations will be blessed. Jew and Gentile, two sides of a covenantal coin. This is so beautiful, that beginning, and it's so robust. So do you see how right from the start, Paul didn't just go right to a problem in Rome. He's drawing the Roman believers into a covenantal language, a historical language. And I love this. Uh, he says it's for the sake of the nations. Um, but look at chapter 1, verse 6. Including you, Romans. In other words, it's so personal. Paul wants to say, I've got this grand scheme to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It could have ended right there with a period, but he doesn't. He says, including you. It's so fresh and so contemporary. Including you, Church of the Redeemer, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In short, Paul wants us to part participate in the gospel it's not just he's just not wanting to us to think about something he wants us to have it he wants us to participate in the gospel because that's the kind of thing the gospel is romans isn't a freighted intellectual treatise it's a passionate exhortation to experience the gospel deeply to be shaped and transformed by the movement of god as he draws you into belonging as he draws you into his saving embrace, as you become a part of his setting all creation right, Paul wants us to have faith, to own it, to take solace in the work of God, which shall prevail, and to join him fearlessly in the expression of that faith outwardly in a way that conforms to God's initiative. That's why he does want them to participate with him in mission, not just because mission's good. It's because mission is what God is doing to draw his covenantal promise to fruition. So all the way through chapter one through eight, which we've been in with Steve Wizard, uh, he, he kind of prods and pokes at that Jewish question, but never really gets right to the heart of it until chapter 9. Chapters 9 through 11 are, in some ways, the fulcrum of the letter of Romans. It leads to that, and it flows from it. He pokes around at the question, um, 
you know, he, he says, you know, in chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? He, Paul, often when he is in dialogue, keeps driving himself into a cul-de-sac. I don't even know if he knows what's coming next. <laughs> He'll ask a provocative question that he thinks people are asking. He solves it, and then he's off on another. Then he gets back on track, but then he asks another question, and he has to kind of get himself out of these very difficult questions. What advantage has the Jew, he asks in chapter 3. Well, he never really gets back to it until chapter 9. And then it comes out fully, but not as an intellectual question. You can see here that Paul is moved by this question almost more than any other emotionally. He says this, and he says this of nothing else. Chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This isn't a distant issue for Paul. In fact, I can't think of nothing where he deploys this kind of language other than around the Jewish people. Israel's unbelief raises the most challenging of questions for Paul, and this is at the heart of his struggle, and he's bringing it into his discourse with the Roman congregation of Jews and Gentiles. Has God's word failed, he asks in chapter 9, verse 6? God forbid. Is God unjust in 9.14? Absolutely not. But how? How is it that God is not failing and unjust? It's unthinkable. But if it's unthinkable, it still raises deep challenges for Paul that he is struggling to understand. If God's promises to Israel are true, then in what way can they possibly be true in light of Israel's unbelief at the most important thing that God has ever done, which is to send himself incarnate on their behalf? And if it seems that God is working out a mysterious and providential plan, does this not evoke these questions of unfairness or injustice or secrecy? What kind of God is this? That's what's at stake. Is he good? Is he dependable? Does he keep his word? Because if he doesn't keep his promises for the Jews, there's not much hope for us Gentiles either. And here, in our passage today, there emerges the context for rebuke. For then as now, and throughout the darker side of church history, the Gentile Christians have had a ready answer to this question. It's obvious. The church has just replaced Israel as God's people. And the Jewish people are subsequently deserving of punishment due to their unbelief. What could be more obvious? Once there was Israel, they screwed up. Now God handed all that over to the church. They're now God's people. The Jewish people are now irrelevant at best, guilty at worst. And that's what explains all of this. That, unfortunately, is an all-too-common perspective. But to this, Paul says bluntly to the Gentiles in 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 18, do not be arrogant. It's rather straightforward. Historically speaking, we have not done very well in heeding this rebuke. So in our passage this morning, in eleven thirteen, he directs his attention to the Gentiles in the Roman church. And here's what I want to say. This is not analogous in other words, when we think about the, the tension between Jews and Gentiles, of course, it's okay for us to think about tensions in other areas of social 
you know, uh, circumstances. In our country, you know, our history of slavery, for example, or there, there could be, you know, the Houthis and the Tutus, there could be all kinds of applications to this. However, this is not an analogy. In other words, Paul is not saying that what I'm talking about here is just analogous to any kind of dispute. He's saying something very particular about Jews and Gentiles, which was true then and is true today. And that is because it refers to God's promise to Abraham. So he's not saying something that is only for that time. He's speaking to all Gentiles when he speaks to the Roman Gentiles. Paul has been called a missionary to the Gentiles. And that is true, but there is some nuance to it. So if you look in 1114, he says, I am a missionary to the Gentiles in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. So in his mission to the Gentiles, Paul was never leaving the, you know, the two-sided coin of a covenantal promise. His mission to the Gentiles was an expression of God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. It was prophesied that the Gentiles would become obedient to the faith of Messiah. That is how Paul understood himself. His call to the Gentiles is inherently connected to the Jewish people who are his people, my fellow Jews, he says. It's a covenantal mission. And so here he pushes forward to try to understand Jewish unbelief and how that pl plays into God's sovereign plan. And here uh, we read in verse uh, 15, for if their rejection... Okay, so here we're talking about Jews who do not believe. That's the subject. Okay, we have Israel as a community. Paul is especially now talking about those Jews who do not believe in Messiah. What about them? Because they're the majority. And, and so he says, if they're, that is Jews who do not believe, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So... Paul picks up here on a theme he developed just prior to our reading here, where in God's providence, he explains that Jewish rejection of Jesus somehow opens the door to Gentile faith and makes room for their integration in God's family. So the Jewish rejection of Messiah does not give license to the Gentile rejection of the Jews. Let me explain that again. The Jews who reject Jesus does not open the door, give privilege to Gentiles to therefore reject the Jews. On the contrary, Paul takes this whole thought of Jewish unbelief and he moves it into another mode of the last days. Okay, or eschatology, if you like a big word. The day that Jesus returns, the days of the Messianic era, the days when God fully completes his covenantal story. He says, in that day, in that moment of fruition, Jewish unbelief will be resolved. Their faith in Messiah will mean life from the dead. That's the impact that Jewish faith in Messiah will have. So this life from the dead thing, this brings Paul to these rich metaphors of dough and olive trees. The dough uh, is likely a reference to temple offerings where the first fruits of the bread were offered. And the olive tree 
was the most common agricultural feature in the Mediterranean world and became a symbol of God's people. And these have rich Old Testament backgrounds. This draws on prophetic themes, which you can read about in Isaiah and Jeremiah. The Old Testament prophets describe that even at the height of Israel's idolatry, there was always a remnant of faithful people. Never did Jewish unbelief reach 100%. There was always a remnant of faithful people who were faithful to Torah and worshiped God with their whole heart and did not indulge in idolatry. There was always a root, a stump, a branch, a remainder upon which Israel could be renewed. And the prophets would talk about this as the first fruits. So here, the metaphors of dough and the metaphors of tree describe both the Jewish people. So when Paul's talking about the dough, he's talking about the Jews who believe in Jesus. And when he's talking about the tree, he's talking about really the whole enterprise of, the, of Israel, grounded in the prophetic promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people and patriarchs. Paul is encouraged that Jewish believers in Jesus are a remnant. And he's grateful for that. And he says that that remnant, to coin a phrase, stands for the rest of Israel. The remnant stands for the rest of the Jewish people. And he sees in them hope for the complete fulfillment of promise. And that's why he's urgent that Jews and Gentiles reconcile. Because both of them are expressions of God's covenant promise. But he's especially burdened here by the overwhelming rejection of the Jewish people for the Messiah. And so he continues his focused word to the Gentiles, which is the subject here, by describing that Jews are the natural branches growing out of the promises of the patriarchs, whereas the Gentiles are wild branches. It has to do with the way that we tell our stories. So you can refer to the way Paul describes the Gentile experience in Ephesians 2. Remember, Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 2, 12 and 13, remember that you were at that time, that is before the Messiah, up, separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the Gentile history. Of course, Paul says, but now in Jesus Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's a different testimony. That is the Gentile story. It contrasts completely with the Jewish testimony, which Paul describes in chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed be forever, amen. Two very different stories. Okay, I cannot say that as a Gentile. I'm grafted into that story by faith, and it is now by grace my own. But I bear witness to it differently. So Paul is here, to use the metaphor, rooting out a proclivity that he sees in the Gentile believers to be arrogant, 
He gives them constructive correction here, and it's very direct. He says to the Gentiles, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. I can only imagine what a blessing that must have been for the Jewish members of the congregation to have heard those red words read out loud, probably by Phoebe. However, I do not want to pass over the phrase in verse 17 of 11 that we Gentiles now share in the nourishing root or fullness of the olive, olive tree. We grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root. Paul wants it to be nourishing for us. He wants us to participate as Gentiles, to experience, to have the sap of God's covenantal promise flowing through us. And our gratitude as Gentiles is unique. We were offshoots of a wild olive tree by no virtue of our own. We're grafted into Israel's tree as an expression of God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Their Messiah is our Messiah, a Jewish Messiah who is, to this day, Jewish. So Paul continues this correction with a warning. Yes, he says, you Gentiles are correct in seeing that the branches were broken off due to unbelief. But your response was not like mine, Paul says. You did not cry out with a plea for the salvation of the Jews. Rather, you became proud. And as Paul the Jew knows, pride was the source of Israel's unbelief in the Old Testament. Many passages on that one. Proverbs 16.5 kind of sum summarizes it succinctly. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. This is what Paul wants the Gentiles to know. He's not trying to address a theological doctrine about eternal security. He says, look, if the natural branches were broken off, how much more will it be easy for God to break off the wild branches? Okay, don't get confused about that. Often that can generate questions about, well, wait a second, I thought Paul went to great lengths in chapters one through eight to describe that I'm saved by faith through grace, not by works. Here, Paul is working with metaphors and he's trying to make a point. He's trying to address pride and arrogance. He's issuing a strong correction to the seeds of pride that if left unaddressed, would bring destruction to God's community. And boy, with the hindsight of history of Christian anti-Semitism and the collaboration of too many Christians in the Holocaust, did it ever It's not an expression of Christian witness for Jew and Gentile to not be reconciled in Messiah. But Paul, being a good pastor, moves forward through the correction to reorient the Gentiles to the gospel truth. In verse 24, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to your nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these the natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree. Paul can't say exactly how this is going to work out, but he knows it will. And Paul wants the Gentiles to know that that's a great source of blessing for Jew and for Gentile. It means that God keeps his promises. It means that, it means that the covenant is going to be consummated in a new world. It means that Jews and, and the nations will worship the Lamb of God around the throne. Everything that God casts 
in our imagination as that once and future new world is going to be made real through Jesus. Paul knows that. And he knows that Israel's unbelief will not have the last word any more than our unbelief has the last word. Years after I met Ofer, he returned to Israel to lead a congregation there. There were, actually, there are very few native Israeli-born Jewish believers in Jesus. When I was there in the early 2000s, probably less than 1,000 people who were born and raised in Israel and are Jewish believers in Jesus. Ofer felt a conviction about that. Uh, to return to Israel and, and help to mentor and disciple other Israeli-born Jewish believers in Jesus. And I remember sitting in Ofer's congregation for the first time, Elroy E., Church of the Shepherd. I was one of only a very few Gentiles in a congregation, about 80 people, about our size, singing and praying and preaching in Hebrew. And it occurred to me how dramatically uncommon this experience was not since the very early church, probably 1,800 years before, had any Gentile had the experience that I was having, being a minority in a majority Jewish congregation. Was that purely coincidental? Was it rather an expression of God's sovereign plan unfolding? Can it be merely by chance that the Jewish people are gathered in their historic land and among them again are a remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus? Could they be the dough offered as the first fruits? I believe so. What's at stake is God's character. He does keep his promises. Yes, the Jewish people are the apple of God's eye and so are you. Yes, God is good, and he is up to good. All things, as Paul said in chapter 8, are working together for the good of those who love him. And finally, at the end of time, God will have mercy on all. This is what Paul bursts out with at the end of our chapter. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Because he knows that somehow in the mode of God's consummating power, he will conquer Jewish unbelief somehow. They shall look on the one whom they have pierced and they shall call him the Messiah and together Jews and Gentiles shall worship the lamb. Like Paul, our lives and our vocations and our very identities are shaped and unfolded in the promises of God. We are nourished by the root of God's covenant to Abraham. We are united by faith with Jewish believers in Jesus who are that remnant, the first fruits of the promise, our adoptive siblings in Messiah's family, and together we have a common hope and a common future, and we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to pray for the Jewish people as Paul does and as Jesus did. Remember when Jesus saw the temple, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, how I would gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. If Jesus prayed this and if Paul prays it, 
we ought to pray it. We can start just simply by praying on a regular basis. Pray the scriptures. My prayer for them is that they might be saved. That's a good place to start. In our family on Friday, because uh, Friday is the Jewish Shabbat, uh, when the sun sets, um, being good Bible readers, of course, the day starts when the sun sets, if you read Genesis. So at sunset on Friday, uh, uh, Shabbat starts. And I always say a little prayer at our table where we pray for the Jewish people. We pray for Jewish believers in Jesus. We pray for Ofer and his family. Here's something that I do. Do you ever pray morning prayer? There are the suffrages. I love those things. The suffrages are just such great, compact, biblical prayers. If you don't know what they are, uh, go online and find a prayer book, or if you have a prayer book, grab one. And you'll notice this is one of the suffrages. O Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. Well, you know, that's a quote from Psalm 28, verse 8, where David says, The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. When I pray this suffrage, I pray for the Jewish people. And if you want a little bit more imaginative equipment, you just go to that psalm as I just read it, and you'll have more. Pray for boldness to share our faith in the Jewish Messiah from a point of humility and faith. There are many ways to think about how to obey Paul's commendation to the Gentile church. And of course, you know, there's never enough time in any sermon for many, many things, but this framework of covenantal faithfulness, of course, informs all expressions of Christian witness. I've just mentioned the Jews and the Gentiles here. I pray that you will find your own passion for the things that you care about in your ministries and in your life of faith within the same framework. Um, God is not just doing only one thing. The gospel has many different applications globally and locally, communally and personally. And I do pray that this story of God's redemptive power through his covenant promise will shape your identity and your mission. Amen.